Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, today we're going to be starting Season 3, and Season 3 is going to be jumping back into ancient philosophy and ancient literature, and we're going to start with the Chinese traditions, and then we'll probably move into uh, Indian philosophy and literature, and from there we'll uh, move into, you know, some of the Persian, and then into the uh Greeks and the Romans, and we'll probably break it off there for this season, because that's going to be quite a bit of material, because as I've said, I plan to go on much more depth with these uh, episodes than I have in the past, um, and several episodes will be devoted to single thinkers or single works, whereas in the past, I kind of gave a quick summary in one episode. So we're going to be diving in a little bit deeper uh, today we're going to be doing, uh, we're going to be talking about the Analects by Confucius, also uh, referred to as Kongji, which I apologize if I'm uh, butchering the Chinese. Uh, Chinese is not one of the languages I speak, so I will do the best I can with these names and with these terms. Uh, but Confucius lived roughly between 551 and 479 BCE, uh, and for those of you that went to school a long time ago, everything used to be A.D. and B.C. Uh, now they've kind of changed the terminology a little bit to uh, B.C.E., standing for behind, Before Common Era, and C.E. for Common Era. But they roughly equate to the old B.C. and A.D. Um, so Confucius uh, lived 551 to 479, as I said. Uh, and he believed that the golden age of China was in the past. It was during the Zhao dynasty, which was uh, 1045 uh, BCE to 771 BCE. So he sees it as ending about 200 years before his birth, uh, the golden era anyways. And this is something that you see over and over again. You know, we've talked about this with other writers, with other works, and we're going to talk about it you know, again and again, because there always seems to be this tradition of people believing that sometime in the past was perfect, somewhere along the way we, you know, went the wrong way and wrecked things. But if you go back to that time in the past where, you know, we think it was perfect, uh, you'll generally find that that time period was also looking back to some other time period. And one of the other things that you're going to notice, especially with philosophy and literature, when you have these, you know, huge bursts of philosophers or huge bursts of writers, they don't tend to happen, uh, for the most part, at the, uh, during the good times of a civilization, so to speak, um, especially in philosophy. Uh, one of the things my students would sometimes ask when we would read novels for class is, why don't we read you know, happy books. And I would tell them happy people don't write books. Happy people go to the beach and enjoy life. Uh, and philosophy is very much the same way. When you have these bursts of philosophy, these aren't times when a civilization is at its peak. They always seem to be at a time when civilization is starting to um, either change rapidly or decline. Now, the reason for this is if things are going along and everybody's doing well and uh, everything seems to be good, 
there isn't the drive to figure out some other way of doing things. There isn't the drive to think about how could we do things better? What are we doing wrong? You know, if everybody's happy and everybody's going along with everything, then, you know, the standard practice is just be happy and go along with it. So as you're going to see with Confucius, you're going to see the same thing with the Greek philosophers, the same thing with the philosophers in every other tradition, is they always kind of view themselves either at a time of change, where things are about to or need to move in a different direction, or they see themselves in a time of decline and feel, okay, we have to hurry up and put something together to, you know, make a make things better. Okay, um, by Confucius' time, um, the kings of the Zhao uh, uh, dynasty were basically more like figureheads. Most of the real power were, was in the tribal regional leaders. The, those were the ones that had the real power. And so the power of the kings was, the overall king was pretty much in decline. And this is one of the um, things that when something like this occurs, when you have lots of regional powers and a weak power over top of all of them, there is not much ability to stop tribal feuding, to stop you know, wars between factions, and so you end up in a time of much more instability. You know, if you think about one of the things that made the Dark Ages unstable, there really was no one power that could subdue everyone else. Um, everyone was trying to be that power, and so in doing so, you had constant wars and constant battles. And this is what you see in Confucius's time. And a lot of what he is trying to do is sort of build an ethics from the ground up ethics. Uh, and, and by from the ground up, I mean an ethics that starts with the individual and then spreads. Uh, because part of what he sees as the problem is, um, you know, a lack of consistency, a lack of firm character, a lack of, you know, people being able to just automatically know and do the right thing. And if you think about the ethics in uh, of Confucius, you're going to see that Plato and Aristotle especially did similar things with their ethics. You know, uh, Aristotelian ethics has a lot to do with character development. You develop your character so that you pretty much always do the right thing just out of habit. And, you know, Confucius, before Aristotle and, and Plato... Uh, had a similar idea that if you build the right uh, traits, if you build the right character, then things will automatically be the way they're supposed to be. And this isn't something that could come from the top down. Um, you know, the king would have to be able to, as an individual, build himself up this way you know, and, and create the right behaviors. And we're going to go into uh, the book and talk about uh, books one through four today. Um, my version that I'm taking it from, uh, this is from readings in classical Chinese, uh, and the section that I'm doing um, on Confucius is introduced and translated by Edward Gilman uh, Slingerland. Now, this is one of the things that I want to, you know, just address briefly. 
most of the stuff that I'm going to be, in fact, all of the stuff that I'm going to be doing for this season is going to be things that are written originally in languages that I do not speak. And, you know, very few people would speak ancient Chinese, ancient Greek, uh, you know, Latin, uh, Persian, all of these languages. Um, there may be a few people that speak all of them, but it's going to be very rare because all of these are pretty much dead languages. And so we have to rely on translations. And when you use translations, I'm going to caution you to always try to find multiple different translators, because I can tell you from reading things that uh, from translators, and but also things that I know how to translate, because I do, uh, I can speak and read quite a bit of French, um, so I, I can translate some of the French for myself, but in looking at different translations of the same work from French, there can be very different ways that it's translated. Uh, philosophy translates a little straighter than literature, especially since literature tends to be poetry, and poetry is very hard to translate from language to language. So I always encourage people, if you're dealing with translations, to try to look at more than one translator. Look at a couple of different translations, and you'll see hopefully a good deal of overlap, but you may see slightly different perspectives because of the way things are translated. But for this, I'm going to be dealing with just this one translation for this discussion. Now, in future seasons, we will be diving in deeper, especially with literatures and philosophies from other languages. And we will be not only talking about the philosophies, but talking about the way different translators have dealt with the material. Um, but for this season, we're going to avoid that and just stick to one translation. This is similar to what I told you about, you know, when you are, um, when you're trying to learn anything, don't assume any one person can teach you everything. You know, don't assume that I'm going to teach you everything there is to know through these podcasts, that I know everything there is to know, because I can tell you, I absolutely do not know everything there is to know. You know, I am an entryway. And from me, you should start also adding in other books, other, you know, podcasters, other teachers, and build a bigger perspective. I'm just kind of opening the door on these different things. But you should always have multiple sources of information. Okay, I want to get into uh, book one of the Analects. Um, and I'm going to read some passages and then discuss them a little bit. Uh, Book one starts out, the master said, to learn and then have occasion to practice what you have learned. Is this not satisfying? To have friends arrive from afar, is this not a joy? To be patient even when others do not understand, is this not the mark of the gentleman? And this is something that is, the idea of the gentleman is very specific with Confucius. Um, the gentleman is someone who actually lives the correct way, lives the correct values. It's not the person who has the appearance, the outward appearance. So he's not talking about someone who's necessarily in, you know, fancy dress, fancy apparel. Um, his, his idea of the gentleman is, is very different from that. It's, it's the person who, um, you know, if you, I guess you could compare it to, like, Plato's philosopher king or uh, 
the overman by Nietzsche. This is the person who exemplifies the way things should be from the inside out. So it's not just a show gentleman is what he's talking about. And it gets very clear that he's he's kind of trying to distinguish what might appear to be a gentleman from what actually is a gentleman. And, you know, talking about to have the occasion to practice what you've learned. Now, this is something that I've always felt about philosophy and literature. I've studied the two, not because they're way out there and don't relate to everyday life. I've studied them because they actually do relate to everyday life. And when you actually look into philosophy, when you actually look into literature, you see the connections to everyday life. And you realize that cultures, countries all build their um, ways off of philosophies and off of literatures. And so by studying those, you you do kind of see how it goes into practice. And I've always talked to, you know, taught literature and philosophy from the perspective of this is not something just abstract to think about to, you know, keep your mind busy. This is something to look at and then apply to practice. How does this work out in the real world? And Confucius ethics are very much about how to do these things, how to live these ways in the real world, not just to, you know, hear wonderful, uh, witty sayings. <clears throat> Master Yu said, a young person who is filial and respectful of his elders rarely becomes the kind of person who is inclined to defy his superiors. There has never been a case of one who is disinclined to defy his superiors stirring up a rebellion. So one of the things that, you know, you can see they're trying to fight against is this these constant rebellions. Because remember, we talked about a little earlier that this was a time period where power was very much in regional hands. And so there was constantly battles for who was going to come out on top. And this has a destabilizing factor in society. And this is one of the things that he comes out early and is speaking against, is this destabilizing factor. Um, the gentleman applies himself to the roots. Once the roots are firmly established, the way will grow. Um, this is, you know, again, talking about building that character. If you build the character, if you establish the habits from the ground up, things will be much more natural. Things will progress in a, um, in a more organized and um, beneficial way. And the way has, that they keep talking about is the way of heaven. Um, now, heaven, looking at it from a Christian perspective, it talks about heaven, you know, heaven and hell, the, the heaven where God is. This heaven has to do more with, um, it's, it's not necessarily a deistic belief as it is sort of the way of the universe, the way of life. Uh, when you establish yourself with the way of life, um, the way things are supposed to be, the natural order, you know, this is kind of what they're talking about. Um, and they, they'll talk a little bit later about sort of moving from chaos to order. Uh, but I want to keep going. Uh, the master said, a clever tongue and fine appearance are rarely signs of goodness. Um, and this is something that you really can apply to, uh, you know, today and to every day. You know, think about how many people speak well, how many people, you know, are witty. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're good people. 
That just means they're good speakers. You know, think about how many of these great speakers turn out to be con artists. They turn out to be just, you know, smoozing people over to get their money or to get their vote or to sell them some product. So this is what this um, uh, saying is about. A clever tongue and fine appearances are rarely signs of goodness. You know, if things are too polished, be skeptical. You know, if things look, it's almost like the, the saying we have, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Um, the next passage, uh, Master Zhang said, Every day I examine myself on three counts in my dealings with others. Uh, have I in any way failed to be dutiful? In my interactions with friends and associates, have I in any way failed to be trustworthy? Finally, have I in any way failed to put into practice what I teach? And this is, you know, again, something you see in lots of later philosophers uh, and, and, and in the way people perceive things, too. It's like, how many times have you seen someone preach one thing and do something else? Oh, you shouldn't do this. This is a bad thing. And then you find out, oh, they're doing all of the things that they told you not to do. And so this is, you know, very much a warning against, um, you know, not practicing what you preach. If, if you say this is what it is, you need to live that and prove it. And this, you know, can even be connected to even more recent philosophies like um, the pragmatists in America. It's like, it doesn't matter what you say, doesn't matter what you believe, what actually matters is what you do and how it works out in the real world. You know, fine words and fine ideas are great, but if you don't put them into practice, they're pretty much useless. Uh, let's see. It talks a lot about being, um, you know, respectful of the elders. And a lot of this has to do with, you know, building traditions generation after generation. So what Confucius is trying to do is not build a good society for the next 10 years or the next 20 years. Uh, what he's trying to do is to kind of get people into the thing where generation after generation, you know, these values can withstand. And this is what all systematizers in philosophy really are aiming for. They're trying to build something that if we follow these steps, if we follow these practices, then things will work well uh, into the future, not just to solve this problem or that problem right now. So when you're thinking about this, while he does deal with, while he does talk about, you know, daily, you know, habits, daily practices, the reason for this is not just to have a good day-to-day. -day. The reason for this is to establish things that are going to be long-term. Um, next section, uh, when our master arrives in a state, he invariably finds out about its government. Does he actively seek out this information? Surely it is not offered to him. And then uh, the another one of the teachers responds, Our master obtains it through being courteous, refined, respectful, restrained, and defer deferential. The master's way of seeking it is entirely different from other ways of seeking, other people's ways of seeking it, is it not? So in other words, um, it, this kind of talks about the importance of when you go into a different place you know don't be smug and think oh i know everything and i'm here among these people who don't know anything and they're less than what i am you know 
Be respectful. Be deferential. Do the things the way they do it. Listen. Don't always talk. You know, and when when you act like that, one, people are going to be more open with you. They're going to tell you things. You know, they're going to show you the way things are. When you're pushy and aggressive and you're, you know, trying to drive people down, remember you're fighting against their ego. You know, everybody has a, a sense of their own self-worth. And when you're fighting against that, when you're trying to dominate others, they're going to become defensive and you're not going to find out too much about them. But when you're respectful, when you listen, when you're, you know, you, you uh, humble yourself, so to speak, um, you'll find that they'll pretty much tell you everything. And that's what this lesson is about. It's, it's about when you go into especially different countries, different, you know, areas, different towns, uh, don't be, you know, what's the stereotypical, uh, bad American where you go in and, oh, you people aren't as good as us. And, you know, because you're going to find people are going to clam up. People aren't going to respect you. People aren't going to like you. But if you go in, you know, respectfully, you, you'll get a lot more out of it. Um, let's see. Uh, Master Yu said, when it comes to the practice of ritual, it is harmonious ease that is to be valued. It is precisely such harmony that makes the way of former kings so beautiful. If you merely stick rigidly to ritual in all matters, great and small, there will remain that which you cannot accomplish. Yet if you know enough to value harmonious ease, but try to attain it without being regulated by the rights, this will not work either. So, to kind of break that down a little bit. Um, if you're just following the lines, uh, you know, following along with the ritual, sticking to it rigidly, um, you're going to be very limited, uh, because you're not really going to be, um, living the values. You're just going to be going through the motions. Um, so it's going to be limited what you can accomplish. Uh, yet if you just go into things with a sense of ease and, completely ignore the rituals, uh, ignore the way things are done, then you're also not going to be successful. Um, uh, Xingong said, poor without, uh, poor without being obsequious, rich without being arrogant. Uh, what would you say about someone like that? The, mancer, the master answered, that is acceptable, but it is still not as good as being poor and yet joyful, rich and yet loving ritual. Um, so in other words, you know, you have to, uh, not only be okay with where you are and, and do what you're supposed to for your station, but you should find, um, fulfillment within it. And in this way, you know, it kind of goes on later. This is how you kind of overcome that and how you become more. Uh, it always starts with the self. Uh, you have to, if you want to be in a better place, you have to improve who you are. You know, if you don't like society, first place to look is at you and start saying, what things can I do differently? And, you know, lead by example in that way. Um, book two, he goes into, uh, the master said, one who rules through the uh, power of virtue is analogous to the pole star. It simply remains in its place and receives the homage of the lesser, uh, of the myriad lesser stars. So in other words, um, you know, if you are the ruler, if you are in charge, you don't rule by 
forcing your will onto everyone else. You know, this is this is seen as something that isn't successful. And mainly, you know, if, if you know anything about human nature, if you know anything about yourself, what is your first response whenever anyone forces you to do anything? Your first response to that is to rebel, to try to fight against it. Um, and this is very much saying if you're the leader, just be a, be virtuous. You know, do the things you're supposed to do. Don't just say the things that you're supposed that other people should do, but if they actually live by it, people will want to follow you. Um, the master said the odes number several hundred and yet can be judged with a single phrase. Oh, they will not lead you astray. Um, uh, the odes are a collection of, uh, Chinese poems. Uh, most people think they were actually written by Confucius, um, that, uh, kind of deal with this in a more literary way. A lot of the same ideas that are in this philosophy, the Analects are also in the odes. And if you remember from earlier discussions, we talked about the fact that literature, uh, especially ancient literature, but really even up through contemporary literature, is never just about simple things. There's always philosophy behind it. There's always culture behind it. There's always, you know, things that they'll show you that are rewarded, things that they show you that are looked down on. So it's always passing along values. And one of the things that he's saying here about the odes is if you read the odes, it's similar to reading something like this, you know, follow along with them, they're not going to lead you astray. You're going to get similar types of understanding of the world this way. Um, the master said, if you try to guide the common people with coercive regulations and keep them in line with punishment, the common people will become evasive and will have no sense of shame. If, however, you guide them with virtue and keep them in lines by means of ritual, the people will have a sense of shame and will rectify themselves. So, you know, this is kind of the idea that overbearing rules and punishment doesn't really work. Because when you do that, what you, you know, encourage is for people to find a way to break those rules. You know, if you're forcing your will onto the people, the people are going to try to find ways where they can get around that will. And so they're going to become dishonest. They're going to become evasive. Uh, they're not going to be forthright. Uh, whereas if you, you know, sort of establish ways of doing things, rituals, that's what he's talking about, about rituals that are, you know, led by virtue, that uh, create um, uh, successful ways of doing things, then the people are going to want to follow that. You know, think about the difference between following someone because you're forced to follow them by, you know, physical force, threat of prison, or following someone because what they're doing is something you see as something that's wonderful, something you want to be a part of. You know, when when you're following because it's something wonderful and something you want to be a part of, you will correct yourself. You'll say, how can I become more worthy to follow? How can I, how can I, you know, follow this more exactly? Because where this is going is somewhere I want to go. You know, it's like the difference of forcing people to go where they don't want to go or encouraging them to come along somewhere where they really do want to go. Uh, the second is going to be much more successful. Uh, the master said at 15, I set my mind upon learning. At 30, I took my place in society. At 40, I became free of doubts. At 50, I understood heaven's mandate. 
At sixty my ear was attuned, and at seventy I could follow my heart's desires without overstepping the bounds of propriety. Now, in a lot of ways, if you think about Plato's Republic, which comes later than this, that's very similar to what Plato lays out in his Republic. <clears throat> much, much larger book, you know, than just that one phrase. Um, but it basically talks about the way you should be in each stage of your life and how each stage of your life is different. What's expected of you at 15 is not what's expected of you at 30, at 40, at 50, etc. Et you know, and as you get, if you go through the stages the correct way, you know, you get to the end of your life basically being able to do what you want because what you want is in, you know, is, is correct. It's in line with the way things should be. Um, you don't have, um, you know, unnatural uh, wants. You don't have the desire to be a bad person at this, if you've lived your life correctly through all the stages. And with Plato, this is, in the Republic, this is the same way. If you train people, you know, through the different stages, when you get to the philosopher kings, they're going to be automatically fit to rule. Okay. Uh, going down a few, um, the master said, I can talk all day, uh, all day long with Han Hui, I probably mispronounced that, without him once disagreeing with me. In this way, he seems a bit stupid, and yet when we retire, I observe his private behavior. I see that it is in fact worthy to serve as an illustration of what I have taught. Hui is not stupid at all. In other words, you know, this is how he understands the difference between somebody who would be just a yes man saying yes yes you i agree you i agree yes 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 you're wonderful um and then doesn't really understand what you're saying at all they're just agreeing with you to you know because they want to please you uh but when you actually observe the behavior you see that it's very different in that this person isn't just agreeing with you to please you this person is actually internalize these values and is actually doing these things uh, let's see uh, the master said both keeping past teaching alive and understanding the present someone is able someone able to do this is worthy of being a teacher so this does open the door for new learning too you know a lot of times people would will want to say, well, Confucius is just about, you know, going back to the past, going back to the good old days. But this passage really kind of breaks away from that a little bit and says, yes, learn the old ways, learn the, learn the rituals, learn the past, learn the way things were done, the way things should be done. But don't close your mind to the new things. Don't close your mind to new learning, to new opportunities. And, you know, this is something that can make a philosophy um, last a long time. It can make it flexible because if you're only about sticking to the past, your society, your thinking has no way of dealing with the present and the future when conditions change. You know, there, there's, there has to be a balance of the two, both understanding and, you know, respecting the past, but also looking at, but what are the conditions today? How, how have things changed? Okay. The master said, if you learn without thinking uh, what you have learned, you will be lost. If you think without learning, however, you will fall into danger. So in the first part of that, if you learn without thinking about what you have learned, you will be lost. This is kind of like 
memorization. This is, this is, this is or learning trivial facts. If you just fill your head with facts, but don't think about how those effects, how those facts apply to anything, um, you're going to be lost because you're going to be stuck in a sea of uh, ideas, but having no way of actually connecting those ideas together and connecting those ideas to the real world. And this, again, is one of the things that I talked about a little earlier that, you know, with philosophy, with literature, I always saw them as things that connect to the real world. And if they didn't, then I probably wouldn't have studied them because I would have lost interest. And so he does, you know, kind of give you this. Don't just learn a bunch of things. Connect those things you learn to other things. Think about it. Does it make sense? In what ways is it deficient? In what ways could it improve? You know, if, if you're not connecting knowledge, then it, it really is worthless. You can have a head full of facts and be, you know, do well in a, in a game show, do well in trivia uh, trivia game, but you're not going to be an intelligent person. Uh, you're not going to be a person who knows how to apply what you know. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who have college degrees that really have no understanding of how to apply what they've learned. They just have a head full of facts. The second part of that is, if you think without learning, however, you will fall into danger. Now, one of the things that this immediately brings to my mind is um, the people who jump onto the crazy conspiracy theories. You know, oh, let me think about this. This idea popped up and I'm going to just think about this and I'm going to run with this and I'm going to, you know, take this one idea and just keep going with it. Well, the problem is you haven't learned other things. You haven't learned, is that a solid idea? What are the things that contradict that idea? And this is why it runs you into a danger because it becomes uh, on the surface that you're thinking, but in reality, you're not thinking. You're just running down you know, a, a path that you said, aha, I want to believe this, so this must be true, uh, without kind of testing it against the rest of the world and seeing if it does, in fact, hold up. Um, uh, and then he has a question asked of the master, what can I do to induce the common people to be obedient? Uh, Confucius replied, raise up the straight and apply them to the crooked, and the people will submit to you. If you raise up the crooked and apply them to the straight, the people will never submit. Kind of a little bit confusing in the wording, but what he's, what he's basically saying is if you set up the system and set up the rituals and the rites to be straightforward and, and, and then apply them to the people, the people will sort of conform to that because they'll see the wisdom of it, they'll do it. If you raise up a crooked system and expect the people to conform to that, um, the straight people to conform to that, the people who are, you know, doing what they're supposed to be, um, they're not going to. Uh, it's, it's going to be something they're going to resist. Some people said of, of Kongi or Confucius, why is it that he is not participating in government? Um, and basically... Um, he says, thus in being, he talks about being a, a good son and a, influencing from that those who govern. In other words, be a good person, be, uh, you know, strong in who you are, have a good character, project that out into the world, 
and through that you will influence the government the government um it says thus in being a uh, filial son and a good brother one is already taking part in government what need is there then to speak of participating in government in other words this is this is you know government is more participating in government is more than just for you know people in representative countries just voting every two years or every four years or however much there's a vote um yes that's part of it but you also have to in between that time uh, be living by the values you have be living by the correct values um, and be putting them into practice and by doing that you're basically participating in governing all the time not just voting and then forgetting about it and going away um book three uh it kind of starts out you have to read some of the footnotes on a lot of these things because there's a lot of references to people and if you don't know who the people are then it might not make as much sense uh, this is why whenever you read especially uh, philosophy or literature you always have to kind of read it but also dive outside of it and and try to figure out what are they alluding to what are they talking about uh he says confucius said of the Xi family they have eight rows of dancers performing in their courtyard if they can condone this what are they not capable of now that would make no sense unless you kind of look into the footnotes or do a little research on that the the zhao dynasty that he saw as sort of the golden age in the past when we were supposed to uh, emulate they had the eight dancers but they were worthy of that that was a that was a right that they had put forth and their worthiness of doing that was you know there because they were worthy people uh, this other family um, they go through the same ritual but they don't have the worthiness of it so it's kind of like a, a fake virtue you know someone who you know puts out the outward appearances of I'm doing virtuous things, but they're not virtuous. They haven't earned the right to do those things because they don't put the proper things into practice in their real life. They're outwardly showing virtue, but inwardly they're not living up to those virtues. Okay. Uh, uh, this is, I uh, start talking about some of the odes a little bit. Uh, someone asks what something means. Uh, her artful smile with its alluring dimples, her beautiful eyes so clear, the unadorned upon which to paint. Uh, what does this mean? The master said, the application of colors comes after a suitable unadorned background is present. Uh, so is it the rights that come after? The master said, it is you, Zizia, who has awakened me to the meaning of these lines. It is only with someone like you that I can begin to discuss the odes. So basically, you know, again, this is like, if you throw the paint on top of something that isn't worthy, then it's, it's going to be a failure. It's going to come through. You have to have that, um, you know, that pure base. And from that pure base, you can build the beauty on top of it you can build the society on top of it so this is more you know this is about more than just a beautiful woman this is about you know going back to you know virtue going back to establishing the proper rights establishing the proper way of doing things the proper way of living you have to have that base first and it connects back to the lines about that family that had the you know the dancers the eight rows of dancers and how they were just 
they were putting the paint on, but they didn't have that solid foundation to put that paint on, to put that glitter on. Um, uh, it talks about sacrifice. Uh, sacrifices, if they were present, means that when sacrificing to the spirits, you should comport yourself as if the spirits were present. Um, and the master said, if I am not fully present at the sacrifice, as if I did not sacrifice at all. Now, again, this is kind of, you You can take it to like sacrifice in, in the religious sense, but you can also think about this as, am I just going through the motions? If I'm just going through the motions, then I might as well not do it at all. There's, there's no value to it. You know, you're just play, paying lip service to something. You're not actually believing it. You're not actually, you know, doing things the way you're supposed to. You're just giving the surface appearance of it. And again, this, you know, huge, you know, idea that keeps popping up over and over again is how to tell the surface shimmer from something of true value. And something of true value is, is true, has true value from the foundation up. Um... A little further down, uh, the master said, if, if in serving your Lord you are careful to observe every detail of ritual propriety, people will wrongly think you obsequious. Uh, and again, this is something you have to kind of compare to, think about the time period that he's living in. Um, you know, you see so many people that are yes men and doing everything they're told and, you know, on the surface, and then they really don't believe that. They really don't think that. They really don't practice that. It's just, you know, kind of uh, butt-kissing, I guess you would call it. Uh, and, you know, the problem is in the present time period, you have so many of the people that they're doing this, the leaders they're kissing up to uh, and kissing up to just so they can get benefits, um, that it's become hypocritical. Uh, if you're someone, though, who is actually following and and the rituals and doing it the way you're supposed to and living up to it, um, then people from the outside might mistake you for someone who's being a hypocrite. And, you know, this is, this is something that is always a danger. You know, when you're nice to someone a lot, you know, how many times have, you know, you've been looked at like, okay, what do you want? You know, people assume that just being nice or acting a certain way, you must have an ulterior motive. And this is a time period where everyone was, you know, living by these ulterior motives. And that's why he said, you know, if you're actually doing what you're supposed to do, it might appear that you're a hypocrite, but just keep doing it anyway. Um, the master was discussing music uh, with the grandmaster, with the grand music master of Lou. He said, what can be known about music is this. When it first begins, it resounds with a confusing variety of notes. But as it unfolds, these notes are reconciled by means of harmony, brought into tension by means of counterpoint, and finally woven together into a seamless whole. It is this way that music reaches its perfection. Now, this is one of the reasons that a lot of, you know, if you look at classical learning, it often had to do, you know, there was mathematics involved, there was music involved, there was art involved. And because because it all reinforced, the, these ideas all reinforced each other. And what he's talking about with music is really the same way you th if you think about, you know, the universe. It starts out chaotic and then order builds from there. Uh, we, we move from chaos to order. 
You know, we start out with what seems like random notes, and then these random notes um, begin to connect. These random occurrences begin to sort of build the, a, a fuller song, a fuller picture, a fuller reality. Uh, so this isn't just about music. This is about sort of the movement from chaos to order. Uh, let's see. A border official from the town of Yi requested an audience with the master, saying, I have never failed to obtain an audience with a gentleman who have passed this way. Confucius' followers thereupon presented him. After emerging from the audience, the uh, border official remarked, you disciples, why shouldn't you be why should you be concerned about your master's loss of office? The world has been without the way for a long time now, and heaven intends to use your master like the wooden clapper for a bell. So after this official talks to Confucius on his own, he comes out and kind of, you know, says to Confucius's followers, you know, don't worry about the fact that he doesn't have an office, that he isn't a king or anything like that, that he's lost his station in life. Um you know, the the universe has a different plan for him. The universe is using him to bring everything back into harmony. He has a bigger purpose than just, you know, being an official or being a, a king or a ruler or whatever. His, his purpose goes far beyond that. Okay, going into book four, uh, the master said, To live in the neighborhood of the good is fine. If one does not choose to dwell among those who are good, how will one obtain wisdom? And, you know, this is kind of like the old saying, if you, if you want to be a better person, a wiser person, hang around with people that can improve you. Hang around with people who are better than you are. Um, you know, people often tend to be envious, uh, to be jealous of people who are better than they are. And the problem is when you do that, you reject those people and you lose out on the ability to improve yourself. You know, being around smarter people will make you smarter. Being around, you know, people who are genuinely good people, not people who appear to be good and aren't really good, but people who are genuinely good, genuinely smart, um, that will rub off on you and, and improve you as well. Uh, the, the master said, without goodness, one cannot remain constant in adversity and cannot enjoy enduring happiness. Uh, those who are good feel at home in goodness, where those who are wise follow goodness because they will feel they feel they will profit from it. So again, a lot of this starts to talk about in this section about um, you know you you go through the, the the rituals, you go through doing things the way you're supposed to be doing, not just for the good times. Um, when things fall apart, then you're not lost for what to do. You are fully able to keep doing what you should be doing, and it comes natural to you. Um, you know, think about times when order in society breaks down and people just sort of lose their mind and, uh, you know, do all kinds of bad things and uh, just kind of, you know, go with the flow of what everyone else is doing, that mob mentality. Um, part of this is, talking about helping you to avoid that, that if things aren't going well, you can't necessarily stop it all, but you can keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. You can keep doing things the right way. And, you know, part of the long-term idea of this is eventually, since the mob has gone crazy and doing all these things, 
they will eventually see that these things are not working for them and they'll start looking for, well, who are things working for? And you kind of bring them back to doing things the way they're supposed to. Um, this is a lot to do with, again, leadership from bottom up is why I call it bottom up because you improve yourself to the point where people just naturally want to follow you. Uh, let's see. Master said, merely set your heart sincerely upon goodness and you will be free of bad intentions. You know, uh, bad intentions often come from uh, having improper ways of thinking about things, um, viewing things as valuable that aren't really valuable. But if what you're valuing is goodness, if what you're valuing is wisdom, you know, you're not going to be tempted to steal because you want the, you know, beautiful necklace or the beautiful car or whatever it is. Uh, it, it's going to keep you from being led down that road. If you keep focused on the things that are really important, you won't be tempted easily. Um, you know, you, again, you get like the American transcendentalist later, much, much later talking about this, talking about, you know, uh, I can't remember if it was Emerson or Thoreau that said a man who's, it was Thoreau, said a man who's minding his own business can't be tempted by, you know, society into doing foolish things. You're, you're, you're you know, keeping to what you know to be true, keeping to what you believe and if society goes off and does crazy things, you're like, well, have fun with that. I'm just going to keep being me. Uh, so it, it, it has to do with, um, you know, creating a self that is functional, not only in good times, but when things aren't going well. Uh, not only when there is no temptation, but when there also when there is temptation, it's easier to resist. If the gentleman abandons goodness, how can he merit the name? The gentleman does not go against goodness even for the amount of time required to finish a meal. Even in times of urgency or distress, he necessarily accords with it. And again, you know, I talked about earlier the, the test of the true gentleman versus the person who has the fancy clothes and fancy mannerisms that appears to be a gentleman is that the true gentleman lives these things, he lives these values every moment. Um doesn't live them just when they're convenient, uh, doesn't live them just when there is a benefit to the to themselves to live this way. Uh, the, the true gentleman just does what they're supposed to do, period, regardless, and, and doesn't stray from that path. Uh, if there is a person who can, for the space of a single day, simply devote his efforts to goodness... Uh, I have never met such a person whose strength is sufficient for these tasks, whose strength was insufficient for these tasks. Uh, perhaps such a person exists, but I have yet to meet him. In other words, what he's telling you is these things that he's talking about, he's never met a person who couldn't do that. Everyone he's ever met has been able to live up to these things he's talking about. This isn't something that's like an impossible ethics and only the best of the best can do this. Um, only the best of the best can be good. Uh, contra you know, quite, quite the opposite of that. He's saying, you know, all the people I've met in my life, I've never met a single person who wouldn't be able to do this if they decided to, if they wanted to. And, and so this is, you know, again, bringing 
philosophy to daily life. And this is one of the things that I think a lot of 20th century philosophy in particular um, has had a little bit of a failure with because it tries to make itself uh, as obscure as possible. Whereas a lot of the older philosophers, this was like, no, this is for everyone to do. You know, yes, they did have sometimes things that were geared towards the upper classes, but philosophy was meant to be something that um, influenced all levels of society uh, and, and were things that everyone could live up to. Uh, the master said, uh, people are true to the type with regard of what sort of mistakes they make. Observe closely the sort of mistakes a person makes, then you will know his character. And what he means by this is when you're looking at a person, the kinds of mistakes they make, whether it's mistakes like stealing things or, you know, being sloppy with the, you know, work, workmanship or whatever, um, this establishes their character. This tells you what their character is really like. You know, if they do sloppy workmanship, that means they have a character that is, that is careless, that, that doesn't really worry about details, that just does things and, you know, tries to pass them off. Or if you see someone who is very, you know, good um, at, at something, they're very good detail in their you know, craftsmanship. Um, this is a person who pays attention. That's their character to make sure they're always doing things the way they're supposed to be. Uh, the master said, having in the morning heard the way was being put into practice, one could die that evening without regret. In other words, if you found out that, you know, people were actually moving back towards the, the way of heaven that he's, he's been talking about, um, once you know people are moving in that direction, you can die a happy person because you know, okay, everything is heading back towards being good. Everything is heading back towards being the way it should be. Uh, the master said, a scholar who has set his heart upon the way, but who is still ashamed of having shabby clothing or meager rations is not worth engaging in discussion. So again, this is kind of going back to the idea of the scholar, but the gentle, scholar and slash gentleman, where if they're worried about how they're dressed or how fancy the food is that they're eating, they don't have sufficient depth to be worthy of listening to. They are still stuck on that surface shine, that surface uh, gaudiness. And if, if they're stuck in that area, what do they have to show you? What, what can you learn from them? The answer is not very much. Um, uh, the master said, with regard to the world, the gentleman has no predispositions or, uh, for or against any person. He merely seeks to be on the side of those he considers right. In other words, you don't immediately set out and say, I like this person, I dislike this person, and therefore the person I like, I'm always going to go along with them. The person I dislike, I'm always going to go against them. Think about how much that resonates in the modern world, um, You know, especially with when you're talking about political parties in the United States. You have the Republicans and the Democrats, and if you're on one side or the other, you automatically have to hate every idea that the other side has, and you automatically have to love every idea that your side has. Um, you know, that's, that's extended to a, you know, to a larger extent to groups, but he's talking about this with people, but with the idea that this also extends to groups. So you might like someone or dislike someone, but your, uh, 
your agreement with them should depend on what idea they're actually putting out. If they're putting out a good idea, you know, bad people have good ideas, good people have bad ideas. That's the way it is. Okay. Um, uh, if you abandon your affairs uh, to in the pursuit of profit, you will have much resentment. In other words, if your only goal is profit, uh, all that's going to lead to is you being resented. You can't be a good person uh, if that's all you're looking for, is to make money, if that's your goal. Okay, uh, I'm seeing from the warning on my screen that apparently I have a 60-minute time limit on these podcasts. And so on the next podcast, I will have to pick up and we will talk about the rest of Book 4. And we'll go into uh, 5, 6, 7, and 8 also. Okay, I hope all of you are doing well and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good day.